0: Welcome to Weekend. I'm Anna Kasparian with Nando Vila. We got an awesome show for you. Uh, Nando, I always feel a little guilty that I don't have an intro as enthusiastic as Waz does for your podcast with him, Woke Bros. Nando Vila!
1: You guys have different styles. You guys have different styles. You know, know, there's different strokes for different folks. I'm just happy to be back. You know, it uh, it was a nice little break. But, you know, I got to admit, like, I was uh, I was supposed to be resting on last Saturday, and I just kept on, like, on my phone. I would just, like, fire up YouTube and, like, see. Well, I wonder what they're talking about. Do you think they're having too much fun without me? Like, I hope the show sucks without me. No, I'm but, uh, i was like, I was, like, checking in. I was, like, how's Paul doing? Uh, how's, how's it? Is Anna, like, laughing at his jokes more than she laughs at my jokes? Like, this, which would be intolerable for me. Uh, so, yeah, happy to be back. Feels good feeling great. It's Excited good to have you show. back.
0: You're my role Thank dog. Uh, Paul did great. Um, he was fantastic. I really enjoyed um, learning from him. You, you know, he talked about black capitalism. For So for those of you who might have missed that mm. episode, um, definitely check that out. Uh, the whole thesis there was that black capitalism isn't going to, you know, help uh, the black community. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting you mean because... Kamala
1: Harris's uh, proposal to do <laughs> uh like low interest loans, loans if you if yeah. you have a business in three for 3 years uh and, and you do uh, in a in a distressed community yeah that that's not going to save black people okay damn i thought it was shit
0: yeah, no, it's, it was such a great segment. And, um, you know, obviously, it's not just about um, certain communities. I mean, our economy is all about encouraging people to finance everything. And that's yeah. why we're dealing with record consumer debt. It's a complete and utter disaster. Um, yeah. But later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, debt as it uh, pertains to Indian farmers. And uh, there's a huge Indian farmer strike happening right now um, in India. Vijay Prashad will join us to kind of fill in on all of that. Um, I'm a little under the weather, so uh, bear with me today. I'm struggling, uh, but hopefully I can, you know, do this show clearly and concisely and you guys can understand what I'm talking about. Um, But it's great. Uh, We're also going to dunk on uh, Ted Cruz in just a minute. Yes. I don't know. Well, or maybe just, we're not. Or not. Maybe we're not. Like, you're a rock and roll kind of guy, Nando, so maybe you're not going to dunk I'm
1: on him. <laughs> a rock and roll kind of guy. <laughs> did you just like, did you just like transport back to like 1959? It's like, hey, that Nando, he's a swell, he's a swell fella. He's a rock and roll kind of guy, daddy <laughs>
0: Kind of, yeah, yeah. But like, why don't we, why don't we do the verso read? Um, and then okay. we'll talk about. Just uh, get it uh, out of the goes. way. Okay,
1: verso read. Let's All right. It. Oh, I missed this part. This is my favorite part of the show. You know, if you join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four book, books in the mail, all Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off your first three months. The Reader tier is only $5 a month for ebooks only. The Comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in February, you'll get Breaking things at work. The Luddites are right about why you hate your job. By Gavin. Yes. Mueller. Tomorrow they won't dare to murder us. A novel by Joseph Andras and translated from French by Simon Lezer. The rise and decline of patriarchal systems: an intersectional political economy by Nancy Fulbrue. and inequality in the labyrinths of democracy by Goran Terborn. Man, tough names and. In- New Verso read this month. Some tough.
0: Verso parts. is the real Mr. Worldwide, okay? That's right. They're international. Yeah, that's, that's right.
1: <laughs> that's right. You know, I'm still Mr. 305, mm-hmm. but uh um yeah. Maybe one <laughs> day, know, I'll be can, the you, Mr. Worldwide.
0: You can definitely uh share some of that uh, uh star power with uh Verso. But anyway, let's uh let's talk a little bit about uh, um Ted Cruz and what the hell is going on with his hair. Um by the way, Kale, we're yeah. doing all right, right? Like my screen is kind of flipping out right now. Is it just me, or are you guys dealing with the same thing?
1: We look, we look great. You look great. Okay, you guys are doing okay. great. Okay. Hi,
2: audience, you're doing great. Let's talk about <laughs> the truth. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Let's do Throw it. it up. Okay.
0: All right. So, um, the impeachment trial in the Senate is happening, and uh, it's been pretty chaotic today because of some recent reporting about CN- uh, about Donald Trump putting Kevin McCarthy's life in danger. Uh, we don't have to get into those details. I think the most important thing to take away from the Senate impeachment trial is that Ted Cruz somehow found a way to be even more questionable and repulsive. Um, and this is what we're talking about. Let's put it up.
1: Yeah, you know, what I is did that? Not think, I did not think that the ugliest human being, like in the history of mankind, could get any uglier. I mean, like Ted Cruz is so offensive looking in on so many <laughs> levels. That I just did not think. I mean, he looks like he looks like he's gonna <laughs> occupy like a, a, a an empty Barcelona apartment in 2002. Uh, I mean, that was oh like the God. look that was popular there with the with that whole movement. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe he's Antifa now, you know, or or oh something God. like we you know with the, sh- the shaved side head. Um, maybe he's going to uh, like a heavy metal concert in 1987, you know, with Megadeth. Uh, I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me.
0: So do we think that this was intentional or was it? Was it intent? I mean, he's a I senator. Don't know what the so...
1: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe his wife tried to cut his hair because it's the pandemic or something and she screwed it up. That's what I was thinking. Uh,
0: intentionally. You know, intentionally. At That's that point, my you theory. just have
1: maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're married to Ted Cruz, you like secretly hate him, you know, and you hate your life. <laughs> yeah, every How single could you day. not? <laughs> Yeah, and she's she's undermining him. So maybe maybe Ted Cruz's wife is the antifa uh, in this whole scenario. Maybe she's yeah. Maybe it's a maybe it's a sort of underground operation. But yeah, that is just brutal. I'll never forget Gawker, the old now defunct Gawker. Back in the day, did a a whole thing where they figured out a verbal like a mouth tick that Ted Cruz does when he gives a speech, and I can never unsee it. He. He goes like he'll say like a line like an applause line, and then when he when he when he finishes the emphasis point, he does this weird mouth uh-huh. thing. Like he'll so he'll be like, "And that's why we gotta defund Obamacare," and then he goes like that. He goes, oh my gosh, you're
0: like, right. And he you're does right. it
1: like, over and over and over again. And he's like, and then we gotta put Hillary Clinton in jail for Benghazi. And just, like, and it's every <laughs> does time. Does he do that lean back I, too? He he always he like his head goes back like and it's like I mean it's just like it was like one of those you know Gawker was amazing and it was like one of those like classic Gawker things in which they they just figured this out they did a they did a, uh, um, a, a like a super a mash cut of it like just just taking one speech and just showing it over and over again and it was like yeah I'll never be able to forget that um, for as long as I live.
0: The thing about Ted Cruz that I unfortunately can't unsee is when he was i think it was during a republican primary debate and he was uh speaking and then some weird white thing like came out of his mouth and yeah. landed on his lip his lower lip yes oh.
1: i remember that Ugh. yeah just
0: it, that was like a little I creature
1: just... <laughs> yeah yeah What, I, I, what like honestly little...
0: what i thought it was and that's why i'm so grossed out by because if it was just like spit yeah it's gross but it's not like so gross that i can't stop like i can't forget about it right yeah. I think it was like a tonsil stone. Like that's what I think it was.
1: Ugh.
0: That's why I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We should probably move off this. But no, uh, Kale uh had a pretty interesting comparison um between uh Ted Cruz's new look and who's the person? Die Di- Di-
1: Antwood. They're like this there's that's like right. this South African like rap duo uh type of thing, like experimental uh type of thing. And uh yeah, uh they were in they were in that movie Chappie. <laughs> <laughs> Seen that movie? Um, it wasn't very good, but they're they're in it. Uh, yeah, no, that is. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, he looks like a he looks like he runs a radical feminist bookstore.
0: You know, the other theory, real quick, is he's maybe preparing himself for another presidential run, and he's like, all right, I just need to find a way to, you know, be the next version of Trump. He had a ridiculous hairstyle. Maybe I need a ridiculous hairstyle. That could be another theory. I mean, who knows?
1: I got to say, like, all these, all these like, Harvard nerds like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or whatever. Like, Ted Cruz went to Harvard. He founded the Latino Law Review at Harvard. He argued, like, nine cases before the Supreme Court. Like, this is, like, some, this is, he's, a, he's a freaking nerd, you know? Like, that's the thing about Trump is, like, you know, love him or hate him. He's no one can say he's a nerd. <laughs> it's the opposite. Yeah. And no one wants to vote for a, a, a nerd, especially not in the Republican Party. Like that's that's why someone like Ted Cruz has no political future beyond mm-hmm. uh what he's where he is right now like there's just no way he's gonna run become president like that's what that's what, like my whole theory when people are talking about, like oh josh Hawley or tom cotton these are nerds they're not gonna vote they're, the republicans are not gonna vote for them you know it's gonna be like candace yeah. owens or uh uh you know uh the my pillow guy like that's more that's much more likely uh than ted cruz uh becoming the next republican presidential nominee so yeah, there's yeah. just
0: no charisma and there's nothing really interesting about him. Um, there's no, you know, character flaw that's kind of fascinating to watch. Whereas like Trump was full of character flaws. It was like a constant train wreck that was entertaining. And I think that's what, um, you know, captured so many, um, people's attention. Uh, you know, even during the 2016 Republican primary, I'm not going to lie, the Democratic debates, were pretty awful like a pretty boring unless finally we get to hear what you know bernie has to say i thought he had some pretty mm-hmm. interesting policy proposals um that really stood out obviously but with the uh republican side i was far more fascinated and excited to cover them because they yeah. were entertaining and i was under the impression that there's no way in hell someone like donald trump could ever you know win the republican nomination and of yeah. course he won and uh, proceeded to become he president won the
1: presidency. for four years. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: yeah. insane. Yeah. Well, okay. Now that we've given you guys a little bit of... Um, banter on nonsense. Uh, Let's get to our Decode segments, um, because I really want to discuss uh, the notion of unity in the country, something that Biden claims that he cares quite a bit about. Uh, Mm. But in reality, there is unity in the country. He just, for some reason, is refusing to tap into that unity and do what the vast majority of Americans want. So let's discuss. The tea leaves aren't really that hard to read. If Biden looks closely and thinks critically, the real division in America isn't actually between American voters. The division is between American voters and the corporate executives who have fought pretty aggressively throughout the years to keep us divided. Now, Americans stand united on a number of different issues, especially on the issue of how they want President Biden to govern. So, for instance, Pew Research found that 80 percent of voters believe strengthening the economy should be the top priority for the Biden administration. So uh, look at that 80 percent, followed by dealing with the coronavirus outbreak and improving the job situation. Those are the top three priorities uh, that Americans have, according to this Pew Research poll. But we have more polls uh, indicating that Americans are united on several issues, including a CBS poll that found that about 83 percent of Americans favor passing a new economic relief package. OK, so 83 percent. Look at that. And I actually really love uh, the statement here. Um, from Justice Democrats, where they argue the question isn't why can't President Biden find unity with Republicans? The question is, why can't Republican politicians find unity with 83% of the American people? But I have more for you. Let's go to CBS. Um, I'm sorry, let's uh, let's move on to uh, a large percentage of respondents in that poll who agree that, um, you know, Biden's one point nine trillion dollar relief package, the proposal that he's um, put out there actually doesn't go far enough. Forty percent of voters believe that. And also a recent Quinnipiac poll found that nearly seven out of 10 Americans favor Biden's proposed one point nine trillion dollar relief bill and 78 percent of Americans are in favor of fourteen hundred dollar relief checks. It keeps going on and on, guys. (laughs) Americans are united on these economic issues. They need relief. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative, liberal, leftist. We're all dealing with a system that has led to an insane amount of inequality, awful working conditions. Look at YouGov and Yahoo, uh, which also put out a poll recently showing that there's quite a bit of public support. 74% of Americans back $2,000 relief checks, the same poll found that 58% of Americans support increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. In fact, here's more on just how United Americans are in wanting to raise the federal minimum wage, which, by the way, has not been raised since 2009 and currently sits at $7.25. Do Americans think that the minimum wage needs to go up?
3: They do. We wanted to find the answer to that question because lawmakers are debating this issue right now. And we, along with the Harris poll, found that most Americans do support raising the minimum wage. Eighty three percent say that seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour is not enough for a person to live on high earners and college educated people may be more disconnected from the realities of minimum wage. According to this new poll, people in households making more than $100,000 are more than twice as likely to think that seven twenty-five dollars an hour was enough to get by. The same thing with college educated people versus people with little to no college education. Now, almost 60% of Americans think that raising the minimum wage would actually help the economy. That's an argument that Democrats are making as they try to include the measure in the next relief bill.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, The nearly 60% of um, Americans who responded to that poll and believe that raising the minimum wage would actually positively impact the economy are right. And for anyone who tries to argue that, no, it's actually very dangerous to pay someone a living wage. If we do that, that means that millions of people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, That is complete and utter BS. And we have case studies to prove it. For instance, at the start of 2020, a record 24 states and 48 cities and counties raised their minimum wages. Encouragingly, recent increases in the minimum wage in several major cities have not resulted in large employment effects that some economists feared. In fact, there has been um, a positive outcome of raising the minimum wage. And should Biden successfully pass his $15 an hour minimum wage hike through his coronavirus relief package, uh, we have some pretty good news uh, for the federal government as well. UC Berkeley economist Michael Reich, the author of a new research paper, said that his analysis shows boosting the federal minimum wage to $15 along the lines proposed by the newly introduced Raise the Wage Act of 2021 would have, quote, pretty substantial budgetary impacts. His paper The Raise the Wage Act of 2021 would have a positive effect on the federal budget of $65.4 billion per year through a combination of decreased spending on some social safety net programs, which many workers are forced to rely on due to low wages and increased income tax. Guess what? When people earn more money, they're able to pay more in taxes and they're less likely to rely on the social safety net. Right now, the federal government is subsidizing massive corporations that refuse to pay their workers' living wages. um, And how is that positively impacting the economy? It's not. Even in Florida, by the way, where Trump won 51.2% of the vote in 2020, Voters uh, overwhelmingly cast their ballots in favor of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The 2020 ballot uh, initiative garnered 60% support needed to pass, and that's according to the Associated Press. Florida becomes the eighth state to approve a $15 an hour minimum wage and the second most populous to do so. And even with all of this evidence showing how United Americans are in increasing the federal minimum wage, unfortunately, Biden seems to be wavering on that issue. In a recent interview with CBS, uh, Biden claimed that he doesn't believe that the wage hike will survive the negotiations in Congress. Take a
4: look.
3: You also want to raise the minimum wage to $15. Is that something you would be willing to negotiate on in order to get Republican support?
4: Well, apparently that's not going to occur because of the rules of the United States Senate.
3: So you're saying um, the minimum wage won't be in this My record?
4: guess is it will not be in it. But I do think that we should have a minimum wage, stand by itself, $15 an hour, and work your way up to the 15 It doesn't have to be boom. And all the economics show, if you do that, the whole economy rises. I'm prepared as president of the United States on a separate negotiation on minimum wage to work my way up from what it is now, which is pain. Look, no one should work 40 hours a week and live below the poverty wage. And if you're making less than $15 an hour, you're living below the poverty wage.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're living below the poverty line. Absolutely. Uh, and that's why it's incredibly important for Biden and the, uh, Democrats in Congress to fight aggressively to ensure that the $15 an hour minimum wage hike is included in the next relief package. To, uh, take it out and have a vote as a standalone bill is ridiculous, unnecessary, especially since this can be included in the relief package and passed Through the reconciliation process in the Senate, meaning that all you need is a simple majority in the Senate to pass it. Why are we playing games? There's no excuse to not pass it. There's no excuse to not include it in the relief package. We have evidence indicating that uh, hiking the minimum wage uh, would definitely pass any scrutiny regarding um, certain parliamentary rules, something known as the Bird rule, because it has a positive impact on the federal budget. So I don't know why Biden thinks it's okay to waver on this issue, but I do know that behind the scenes, there's something going on that Americans should know about, because this isn't about, oh, it's too tough to pass it. This is about other people who are in Biden's ear discouraging him from doing the right thing. So here's a troubling sign. Just this week, as Congress and the media was focused on the Senate impeachment trial, the second Senate impeachment trial for Donald Trump. Biden hosted corporate executives at the White House to discuss the upcoming relief package. The gathering included the who's who of America's austerity fan club. Take a look. It
3: includes representatives from some of the most powerful business lobbies, including the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce. To that end, you will see CEO Jamie Dimon from JPMorgan Chase at the meeting. You will also see Doug McMillan from Walmart at the meeting. And then GAP CEO Sonia Single is also on the list. She was present for the administration's very first conversation on the economy, a roundtable that was held back in December during the transition. And Lowe's CEO Marvin Ellison as well, in addition to the outgoing CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Tom Donahue. So it is definitely a more white-collar attendee list than these conversations that we've seen in the
0: past. What do you mean then those conversations we've seen in the past? Uh, Biden loves meeting with corporate executives who, by the way, are not in any way interested in serving the best interests of the American people, the majority of whom are united in passing a relief bill that's robust, that actually responds to the crisis that we're dealing with right now, and uh, does away with the inequality that Americans are experiencing as a result of... Of these corporate executives uh, hoarding the wealth for themselves, paying essentially nothing in federal taxes in some cases. Amazon's a perfect example of that. And look, the alleged purpose of this meeting was to build support for Biden's proposal, which is ridiculous. But even if you were to take that at face value, it's a fool's errand to think that corporate executives would ever be persuaded into offering robust economic relief to Americans. For example... One week before Biden met with Ellison, that's the uh, head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce actually sent a letter to Congress and the White House urging them to be a little more measured when it comes to the relief package. In fact, one thing that they were hyper-focused on was targeting it as a result of, or in response to the direct checks that Americans could receive, which is, of course, $1,400 dollars. Biden promised $2,000, but I'll put that aside for now. They want to ensure that people who had qualified for the relief checks earlier wouldn't qualify under the Biden administration. So here's what their letter said. Congress should consider targeting any additional stimulus checks based on income, loss of employment, or similar criteria. Taking this advice uh, would be a massive mistake. The targeting that they're talking about would rely on income data that was disclosed from 2019 tax filings, uh, which doesn't make sense because the coronavirus pandemic didn't destroy our lives until 2020. So they would rely on old, irrelevant data in order to uh, target these relief checks to people. And keep in mind that most Americans haven't filed their 2020 taxes. Uh, So what we should focus on is what we know from data coming from the Census Bureau. And here is the recent data that they released. Recent census data shows that 45% of households earning between $50,000 and $150,000 have experienced a loss of employment income since March of 2020, including 48% of households earning between $50,000 and $75,000. Nearly a quarter of households earning between $50,000 and $150,000 say they expect to lose employment income over the next four years. But I also want to be clear about something. I... It shouldn't be targeted at all. If anything, if, if you want to ensure that wealthy people don't get these checks, just tax them later when they file their taxes. Doing it ahead of time needlessly delays economic relief that Americans need right now. And to be quite honest with you, Biden and uh, Congress has already delayed this process uh, too much for my, my own taste. I, I I think that people really do need this help right now, and the uh, measly 900 Billion-dollar package that was passed before Biden came into office uh, just was not enough. It was inadequate to help people pay their bills um, and deal with the loss of income. Now, there's one other thing that maybe will speak to Biden and congressional Democrats, because if all they care about is their own political futures, their own careers, understand that taking the advice of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would be political suicide. And I'm not joking. For instance, economist Claudia Sham, Sam uh, found that if Biden succumbs to the wishes of corporate elite and uh, Senate Republicans by applying stricter means testing to determine which Americans are eligible for this relief, 40 million Americans who receive the $600 relief checks under Trump could be denied checks or only see partial payments. Yeah, I'm sure Americans would really love that. I'm sure Americans will, uh, you know, reflect fondly on uh, congressional Democrats and Biden if they qualified for the direct checks under Trump and now all of a sudden don't qualify for them. It's just so incredibly stupid. And they certainly should not listen to this advice. Um, the chamber's letter, by the way, also expressed displeasure about Biden's proposal to extend $400 per week unemployment benefits through the month of September. If you thought the means testing was ridiculous and complicated, just get a load of what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce wants to do with unemployment. Congress, they write in their letter, should also replace the $300 flat weekly supplement with an individually calculated supplement of Up to $300 that ensures that no individual receives more on unemployment than they are paid while working. By the way, uh, Biden's offering $400 per week uh, in his relief package, not $300. But they address that as well, writing increasing the flat weekly benefit to $400 results in approximately 40% of unemployed individuals receiving more in benefits than they earned working. This distorts the labor market and deters individuals from returning to work. Okay, so just stop and think about that for a second, okay? Let that sink in and think about how unbelievably shameless and transparent they are in how they're unwilling to pay their workers a living wage. They're not even willing to compete with the scraps that the federal government throws at us during this crisis. They're worried that $400 a week is so much money that they, that they would have to raise their wages, that they would actually have to pay people more in order to do the jobs that bring in a tremendous amount of profit for them. So they refuse to increase uh, starvation wages. Biden claims that he wants to unite and heal the country, but the real question here is Is he willing to do what it takes to actually focus on what Americans want to do, what Americans are united on? And Americans want economic relief. There's, there's no question about it. Doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, this crisis and the economic system that we're living under, even before the crisis hit, has led to a lot of instability, economic anxiety. Americans are dealing with record consumer debt because they're forced to take out loans in order to pay for the bare necessities. Biden needs to reject the wishes of corporate executives because, again, the the fight in this country, while yes, on certain cultural issues, social issues might appear to be between Democrats and Republicans, but the real fight is between the American people. And this economic system driven by these corporate executives that continues to exploit their hard work and pay them nearly nothing uh, in return for that. So it's hard to take Biden seriously unless he's willing to do what it takes to really focus on what unites Americans and create a better system where people can live decent lives uh, without dealing with all the suffering that we're seeing right now. Nando.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I get I get this question asked a lot, which is like, how do I talk to someone who's a, maybe a conservative in my life, like a family member or a friend or something and 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 sort of get them on our team, so to speak? And I'm, I always say, like, talk about things like this, you know, th- talk about the things that we can find a lot of common ground on do not under any circumstances weigh in on whether Gina Carano should have been fired from <laughs> the Mandalorian or whatever, you know, like whether mm-hmm. the third, you know, the third supporting actor in, in a Disney show it deserves to be fired for whatever she said on, on Twitter or whatever. Um, like that is a recipe for disaster. You should avoid that at all costs. Um, you should talk about how your work life is shitty and how we have to change that. And that's that everyone can get behind that. Um, and in the Definitely. specifics of, yeah, and in the specifics of this this current political moment, um, just the, the means testing of the checks, what you mentioned of of giving fewer people than uh, like Biden giving fewer people checks than Trump did. like if that's if that's not such a 101 of like a recipe for a complete and utter right wing backlash, Um, like that would sink the Democrats in 2022, like absolutely sink them. Like you can, you can imagine tons of congressmen who have a lot of these people, a lot of this trench of people who are, you know, who would be screwed essentially because they got the Trump check and now they're not getting the Biden check. Um, those people, like you think they're going to vote for Democrats? No, they're going to go vote for the guys who gave them the check. Um, and I'm sure there's a tons of democratic congressmen in districts where there's a lot of those people. Um so it's just politically it's like it's absolute suicide it's just it's it's hard to even wrap your mind around how unbelievably stupid it is you cannot do less than the other guy i'm sorry you just can't you have to do more than the other guy you that's, that's like that's the simplest thing in the world and in in terms of the 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 minimum wage, which as you mentioned Biden seemed very very quick to to kind of fold on very early. They have to hold the line. I mean, these conservative Democrats will end up coming around. They will. They're not going to tank the COVID relief bill over the fifteen dollars minimum wage. No one is. Kristen Sinema is not going to do it. Joe Manchin's not going to do it. They're not going to tank the COVID relief bill. They just not like you. Just have to hold the line. No, you know, they're you just not. Have to, yeah, you just have to stare at them in the face. I and have be a like, point on that. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And I think um, if you want. Some confidence on that point, right? All you need to do is take a look at how Joe Manchin reacted to Kamala Harris going to West Virginia. To promote yeah. the COVID relief package, he was livid, and the reason why he was livid is because he was like, "Oh, you know, I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm the big guy now." Oh, and I, I, no, I, I think that we need no, 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 eleven dollars an hour, not fifteen dollars an hour. And Kamala Harris, to her credit, right, we're fair to her credit. She went to West Virginia, did what she did, and then all of a sudden he's changing his tone, right? So if Democrats are willing to play hardball, including playing hardball with cinema and mansion if they try to you know speak up against this relief package they'll get what they want and you can yeah. absolutely pass $15 an hour minimum wage through the reconciliation process make sure it's included in the relief package let's not play games if the shoe were on the other foot republicans wouldn't even be having this discussion the package yeah. would have been passed by now if this is what yeah. they had wanted right
1: yeah anyway. i mean that's the thing is like you know the rama manual quote um that he that he had in 2008, like never let a good crisis go to waste, is absolutely true. Like you have to use the current crisis, which is severe and widespread and affects everyone. You know, affects everyone. You have to use that to shoe in other stuff that you want. You know, because everyone agrees you have to fix the crisis. So then you just you just tie things to it. You know, because they're mm-hmm. not going to tank the bill. Over these other issues, they're just not going to do it. Like they, they all are. They all desperately want to get reelected, and they know that they need to do some sort of COVID relief. They needed. They need to get the vaccines out. They need. They need all this stuff. All this stuff has to happen. It will happen. The question is, like, how much can you tie to that? Like, how much can you, you know, attach to that thing that is going to happen? Um, and I, I promise you, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema would not tank. the the COVID bill because they desperately need it they would not tank it over the 15 dollar minimum wage they'll make a big stink of it and they'll say things in the press whatever what they're banking on is that joe biden and schumer will back off that's what they're banking Mm -hmm. on but if they don't they're gonna vote for it i promise you they will It's, it's like i have no doubt in my mind so
0: and and in regard to schumer just one final point um Schumer seemed to be very willing to, you know, switch his messaging um, and even his own proposals to more of what we want once he started feeling as though AOC might pose a threat, right? So AOC needs to get active. You know, she needs to get active specifically on, I don't know what kind of hints she needs to drop, but Schumer needs to be afraid of getting primaried by someone to the left of him. And I guarantee you he'll be in favor of this legislation, he sees
1: the political wins in New York, and he sees that you know a bunch of socialists are getting uh, elected into the state senate, and and AOC is you know very popular there, and and yeah, he sees he, he fears now a primary from the left. I mean, that's what he fears more mm-hmm. than you know a, a conservative primary. I mean, that's just that's just the reality. It's like it's just like when the, the Republicans started fearing Tea Party challenges from the right, they like previously kind of quote-unquote moderate republicans uh went way to the right i mean that's just how it works Mm -hmm. it's about power it's about leverage and it's about who who do these people fear to whom do they owe their power and whom do they fear that's really what it all comes down to and that's schumer i mean it's just that's just the the easy political calculation it's nothing that he he didn't change his mind on anything it's just who does he fear most so
0: exactly yeah all right nando uh what do you have cooking
1: Well, um, you know, I don't know if you know this about me, Anna. I think you do, but I've been known to pick up a guitar here and there and strike up a tune, you know, shred like hell and melt some faces. Yeah. And last month, those of us in the guitar-playing community you know, the ones who have a subscription to Guitar World magazine still and know who Joe Satriani is, got a little bit of news.
0: Taylor Guitars in El Cajon is transitioning to 100% employee ownership.
1: Yes, Taylor Guitars is going to be owned by its employees. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. Now, for those of you who don't know much about guitars, Taylor is one of the most famous manufacturers of acoustic guitars.
3: This is one of the biggest guitar factories in the United States. Taylor Guitars was founded by Bob Taylor and Kurt Listug in 1974. That's fairly new considering some of its competitors like Gibson or Martin Guitars. Today, big music names like Taylor Swift, Jason Mraz, and Zach Brown strum to the tune of a Taylor guitar.
1: Yeah, they're considered some of the best guitars you can find. I mean, Taylor Swift plays Taylor, so you know they're good. And as of last month, the company's fate is going to be in the hands of its 1,200 employees, most of whom work at the factories in El Cajon, California or Tecate, Mexico. And that sounds kind of cool, right? I mean, you know, one of the central problems with capitalism is that most of us have to work for private companies that are owned by people who are not us. We create value for those companies in exchange for a wage, except the value we create is greater than the wage we get in return, and that difference is what we call profit, and all of that goes to the people who own the company. So if the employees own the company, then the value they create for the company ultimately goes to the people who work for it. Now, it's worth clarifying a few things. Taylor did this through something called an ESOP, or Employee Stock Ownership Plan. This is not, to be clear, a worker co-op, at least not for now, but what it does ensure is that Taylor will not be sold to, say, someone like a private equity firm.
3: Now, tell me about the transition to 100% employee ownership. Why did you guys decide to do this, Kurt?
4: Well, we know that we won't live forever, and we would like the company to continue beyond us, so we have the responsibility to put the company in the right hands. And uh, our choices were kind of limited. It was keep it in the family. I don't have kids. Bob has a couple of adult daughters. They're not, they weren't interested in being in the guitar business. We could have sold you another guitar company or a financial firm. But those were both distasteful to us. We thought our guitars would suffer in quality. We thought the business would, would kind of go downhill. So the, the best choice for us was we looked at who helped us get to where we are and who most deserved it, and that was our employees. So we found a way to structure an employee stock ownership plan, and we sold the company to that, and the employees now are inheriting the company. So
1: you've heard the story before, right? Company is healthy and successful and maybe even beloved. It then gets sold to a private equity firm who then squeeze out as much value in the short term as they can, ruining the company in the process and laying off all its workers. A recent example of this is Fairway Markets in New York. Um, this is from the Atlantic's write-up of that story. Uh, the story is a familiar one. Even for shoppers hundreds of miles from the nearest fairway, most consumers have seen some of their favorite chains, like Toys R Us, ShopGo, Claire's, Payless Shoe Source, Nine West, Gymboree, Staples, and A&P, among many others, face financial distress and shutter some or all of their stores. Like Fairway, these businesses were owned by private equity, a form of finance in which investors buy, overhaul, and then sell companies. Also, like Fairway, the other retail chains were profitable at the time they were taken over. Before those buyouts, these businesses had low levels of debt and owned their real estate, a necessary precaution for companies suddenly facing more competition or industries seeing widespread changes. Taylor, for their part, had low levels of debt and owned their real estate. The Atlantic continues. Most companies mean to stay in business in the long term, and those in the industries most exposed to the business cycle know that low debt and no rent are the keys to surviving hard times and then prospering when the good times return. The motivation is very different for private equity owners, however, who operate under a much shorter time frame, often just three to five years before moving on. For them, low levels of debt and high levels of real estate ownership present a get-rich-quick opportunity. Basically, what they do is load these healthy companies up with debt, sell, any of the assets they may own and use their cash flow to pay themselves. It's one of those things that when you hear about it, you find it shocking that it's actually 100% legal. And had Taylor's founders sold to a financial firm, it's safe to assume that the company would not survive for long precisely because they owned their factories and had healthy cash flows. The financial vultures would seen that as an opportunity to pay themselves exorbitant dividends. Now, Of course, it's worth mentioning that Taylor isn't the exception, not the norm. It's a company that makes a highly specialized artisanal product and its founders clearly had other goals outside of the naked pursuit of profit in the short term. But that's always going to be an outlier in our system. That's why people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn both included employee ownership plans in their respective campaigns for president and prime minister. Writing in Jacobin about Corbyn's plan, Peter Gowan writes... Quote, the Inclusive Ownership Fund's proposal, drawing its name from much and much of its inspiration from a recent report by researchers Matthew Lawrence, Andrew Pendleton, and Sarah Mahmood of the New Economics Foundation, calls for transferring 10% of the equity in all British firms with over 250 employees into worker-owned and controlled funds over the next 10 years. The funds would pay out annual dividends of up to £500 and retain the remainder as a social dividend to buttress public services and reduce inequality. And for their part, Vox.com called Bernie's employee ownership proposal, quote, his most socialist idea yet. I love that, you know, Bernie's most socialist idea yet, explained from the good friends at Vox.com. Anyway, and like much things Bernie, he has been saying some version of this for a long, long time. Here he is way back in 2007.
4: This amendment would begin to reverse that trend by providing employees with the resources that they need to own their own businesses through employee stock ownership plans and eligible worker-owned cooperatives. And here he is way back in 1985. But what we're talking about here is a new vision about the relationship of people to the work that they do. Now the fact of the matter is that many of us work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week, all over the United States of America. And we become used to the way we relate to our employers. We understand and we accept it as a basic reality that we go to work for somebody else, that somebody else decides the kind of product that will be produced, how it will be produced, where it will be produced, and when it will be produced, and that somebody else has the right to say that, gee whiz, we can't make money in this town anymore, and we're going to leave and go to the Dominican Republic where we can get workers for 2 or $3 a day. Why do we have to pay all of $4 an hour when we can get cheaper labor abroad? I, the owner, will make that decision, and you, the worker, and you, the community that used to house this company, or this factory, or this office complex. The fuck? It's mine. I own it. I will do as I please. You
1: gotta love young Bernie. He still was already old at heart. Anyway, when we talk about politics, like we do on this show, and like maybe you do in your life, what are we really talking about? I mean, if you really boil it down to its essence, politics is about who gets what in our society. As Marx said, it is a struggle between capital and labor. Capitalists, or the bourgeoisie, are those people who own things, like companies or land. Labor, or the proletariat, are those people who do the work in exchange for a wage that the capitalist gives them. And a good way to look at that struggle in its most basic form is to see what percentage of the overall economic pie goes to capital and what percentage goes to labor.
5: Economists have a a rule of thumb, I guess you might say, when it comes to economic growth that the gains from that growth in terms of income tend to be split between labor and capital in a fairly standard way that doesn't change much over time. Uh, About two thirds of income gains go to labor and the bulk of the rest goes to capital, owners of businesses, owners of shares and, and equipment and things like that.
1: So the economist guy is right. The percentage of the income that goes to capital and the percentage that goes to labor had been relatively steady for a long time. Two-thirds went to labor and one-third went to capital. Now, for us on the left, that was already intolerable because that one-third that went to capital was already way too much, given that it's not like one-third of the overall population were capitalists. It's in fact much, much smaller than that. But anyway, in recent decades, that intolerable situation has gotten worse.
4: Men and jobs are the essential basis of our modern America.
5: Interestingly, though, since about the 1980s, this sort of rule of thumb uh, has really only been true in economics textbooks. Uh, For the past generation or so, the share of income that's been going to workers has been declining steadily. It was around 66% across rich countries uh, in the the 1980s. It's since fallen to about 62%. Uh, In Northern Europe, the declines have been especially large.
1: So what we on the left want to do is reverse that trend and increase labor's share of the pie at the expense of capital. Eventually, we would like it so that labor gets 100% of the pie. So how do we do that? Well, there are essentially two types of reforms that can do it. The first, and I think the most crucial one, is reforms that increase workers' power. The main way to do this is through labor unions. There are other things like putting workers on corporate boards, like they do in Germany, but the main thing is unions. And this is still the most important thing that we need to focus on. The second, is ownership reforms. Basically, who owns the firms? Eventually, we want the the workers to own all of the firms. Um, And there are several ways to do this. Matt Brunig talks about social wealth funds a lot, such as the one in Norway. And that does seem like a great thing. And there are also schemes like worker co-ops or ESOPs, like what Taylor just did. And there are other examples of this around the world. My hometown of Miami has a pretty famous one. The public supermarket chain is actually majority owned by its employees. And the most famous example of a worker-controlled firm is Mondragon in the Basque country in Spain. Now, I have to admit that when I saw this Taylor news, it put a smile on my face. Because I've owned Taylor guitars in the past, and they really are great. And one of the contradictions of capitalism is that it often destroys things that people genuinely love. But Bob Taylor for all that we love him, is no revolutionary. But he wants to keep his company going, and he recognized that turning it over to Wall Street would mean the death of Taylor Guitars. But no, this bit of fun, quirky news will not usher in a socialist utopia. But thinking about who owns the companies we work at is an important piece of the puzzle. And in the meantime, we can at least rest easy that we'll still be able to see geniuses like Michael Lemo from Norman's Rare Guitars in the Valley Incredible Store shred on this beautiful 12-string tailor. I think if I just practiced a little bit more every single day, I could do that too.
0: Damn, Nando. Um, Good job at increasing our female demo uh, by that little snippet of you playing your electric guitar. (laughs) That was nice. Um, Great segment. (laughs) Really, really good segment. Um, I I have to say, like, one thing that I I think um, for people who want to promote the idea of worker co-ops... Like, I think one of the takeaways is that when employees own the company, right, the stakes are higher. Like, it's not, you don't feel like you're just some, I don't know, sometimes with certain workplaces, you feel like you're just there to make the money that you're going to make and you don't really have any type of um, sentimental tie to it. The stakes aren't really that high. You can, you know, you'll either get fired or you'll quit and you'll move on. Um, when you own the company, it's, it's your baby, right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that mentality leads to more growth because we hear about the importance of growth under capitalism all the time. Um, but in a worker owned co-op, I would argue that um, growth is much more likely when you have employees who own the company, the stakes are higher for them, and they actually care about the success of the company.
1: Yeah, I mean that's what Marx talks about: is that the workers are alienated from the work that they do because yep. they they understand on some intrinsic level that it's not that it's not for them that the wage that they're getting in return is insufficient, you know, to the value that they're creating, and that it's you know, like you said, it's just on a sort of more sentimental level, it's like, what do I care? Like if I if I bust my ass and make you know a few more widgets in the widget factory, it's not gonna it's not gonna make a difference, you know. The 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 under capitalism, the real kind of driver is the threat of miseration, right rather than like mm-hmm. the, the sort of joy and of, and work that you put into whatever it is you do it's like if you don't do this you're gonna be poor on the street and uh you're gonna die so that's 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 the real motivating factor and that's why people are miserable like that's why that's why workers um feel alienated from the work that they do so again like i think that this story I mean i just i just did it because i thought it was fun and it's a fun little story I mean it's not gonna like it's not going to usher in the revolution or anything like that, but it's it's just an example of of, of, of little little things that can happen um, that that will change the fundamental relationship that we have with the work that we do. I mean, that's why Bernie has been talking about this for so long. It's like, you know, that 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 on some fundamental level, if we own the companies that we work for, we feel like we're working for ourselves. And it's just it's it's a that's a different that's just a different thing um again, yeah. I still think that we'll there's literally other, be yeah we'll
0: literally be in more invested <laughs> in the work totally that we
1: do. yeah exactly, yeah. and of course, like there's yeah. a million other million other things that need to happen for social progress again like the i want to stress the most important thing is increasing labor power like increasing labor unions and 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 collective organization. Uh, for workers to be able to exercise their rights and exercise their power and all that thing that's still the most important thing and you know like things like what's going on in in Bessemer Alabama with the Amazon union is like you know that's 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 the thing Um, this is kind of like another way another another thing that also should be happening Um, but one shouldn't supplant the other if that makes sense like it's it's it's, yeah it's, it's supposed to be like a like a shared kind of goal.
0: I love it. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about farmers rights uh, in yes. India, because there have been mass protests in the country. And here to help us kind of break it down is uh, Vijay Prashad. Joining us now is Vijay Prashad, an Indian historian, journalist, commentator, and a Marxist intellectual. He's an executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and the chief editor of Leftward Books, author of Poor Nations and Washington Bullets, among other books. Vijay, thank you so much for joining us. I think you you're might be a, muted. Mute. Yeah, you are.
6: Thanks a lot. Great to be with you. Yeah, sorry. It's
0: great to have you. No worries at all. Um, all right, well, I'll throw out the first question. Um, you know, there have been mass protests, uh, farmer protests in India. It's been going on for quite some time now. And so what is it that they're specifically protesting? What, what made them take to the streets?
6: Well, firstly, it's um, International uh, World, well, it's World Radio Day. Uh, and I'm happy to be with you. I, I know this is not entirely a radio show, but I'm happy to be with you. Um, there's a longstanding dynamic in capitalism that erodes the ability of farmers and agricultural workers to make a living. You know, this is a long history. So let's not forget that history. It's been a very long struggle for farmers and agricultural workers to survive against the entire profit system, not just what's happening in India today. Uh, this long-term problem is what provoked in the United States, for instance, the suicides uh, during the farm consolidations, the monopoly control of farms in the 1980s. You might remember the farm aid concerts in the United States and so on. This is a very long-term issue that I, I'd just like to have us put on the table. Um, more Closely in terms of India, um, last year in the middle of the pandemic, the Indian government, the extreme right government led by Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Modi, pushed through three farm bills and two labor bills, all basically along the lines of the International Monetary Fund's so-called um, you know rationalization liberalization policy. Um, you know, in terms of the labor bills, it's called basically. Uh, You know, there's a kind of labor rationalization that's needed. What they mean is, of course, labor needs to be defeated. Um, These farm bills are very, very much an attack on farmers and on, on agricultural workers in the following two ways, at least. Firstly, they allow big corporate entities to enter and to come in and dominate the marketplace, the mandi where the small farmers, medium farmers bring their, their goods to sell. So there is this issue of who controls the mandi. Um, secondly, the farm Corpor- Food Corporation of India, the FCI, which used to have a commanding role in the mandi in this marketplace, would come in, would buy um, you know, the product brought to the market by the small farmers, medium farmers and so on. And by doing this, the Food Corporation of India did Two simultaneous things. On the one side, it enabled a floor price for the farmers. You know, if, if there was insufficient demand for the farmers' uh, products, the food corporation would buy up, uh, you know, whatever they were selling and ensure that there was a minimum support price for them in terms of their incomes. On the other side, food corporation would take that Um, you know, that product, uh, whatever they bought, and they would then distribute it through the public distribution system. So there was a floor price for the farmers, and then there was food security uh, provided for people, a a way to tackle hunger. This was such a key part of the Indian state's agenda. And last year, the government just slashed, the with these three farm bills, slashed the ability of the state um, in a social democratic way to come in there to ensure a minimum support price for farmers and to ensure that the public distribution system uh, to distribute foodstuffs to the hungry, to the poor, uh, all of that was under threat of being destroyed. And because of that, farmers who are both people who require the support price and because of the long term attack at agriculturalists, they require as well public distribution support uh, to tackle hunger they basically joined with the workers in the largest strike that's taken place, I think, um, that we can see in, in record, which is on 26th November in 2020, 250 million people came out on strike. And that was the day that the farmers' revolt began. And that farmers' revolt started on the 26th of November and continues to this day, including the encirclement of Delhi, and on the 26th of January, which is India's Republic Day, the farmers entered the city uh, with a, in a confrontation with the government saying, you've got to repeal uh, these bills. Right now, there's a debate in the parliament where the opposition is demanding the repeal of the bills. The government is basically standing firm, refusing to budge, accusing the farmers. This is what the Prime Minister Narendra Modi said. He said he accused the farmers in parliament of being parasites i mean it's extraordinary to have um, the prime minister of india use the word parjivi to talk about the farmers parasites andolan jivi as if they give their lives only uh, to revolt you know trying to suggest that they are anti national terrorists and so on farmers are not budging by the way more and more of them are coming out onto the streets they are confronting the police And let's, you know, I'll I'll pause in a minute, but let me say this one thing. The police, the military, these are essentially peasants in a uniform. Their sensibility is with the farmers because these are their family members. And in many of the protest sites, police officers, soldiers have come out and they've said, we stand with with our brothers, sisters, parents, and so on. And this is actually really changed the political calculations in the country as as you begin to see that there's mass support for the farmers. The government is doing all kinds of dirty tricks, including terrible repression against journalists, including our friends and colleagues at newsclick.in. They they faced over 100 hours of detention uh, by the enforcement directorate. The government is trying to suppress the story there is no protest without a journalist, because if nobody reports it, it may not be happening. So they understand that they need to crush the journalist. They went out there. Uh, they've arrested uh, Nodip Kaur, who tried to report the story. They've arrested uh, Mandeep Punia and so on. But the attack on NewsClick is really significant. So, I mean, there it is. That, that's the farmer's <laughs> agitation in a nutshell.
1: So I, yeah, I mean, we we covered this when it when it was kind of first breaking um, on our show, and I found it just so remarkable because India is such a huge country, mean um, it's a billion people, uh, and it's just you know very diverse, uh, you know, huge populations you know, around a huge territory. Um, it seems to me like that would be very, very difficult to organize something on this mass scale, especially with so many impoverished farmers, like you know, the sustainability of this, the, the sort of lasting power. Just how did they do it? Because I'm I'm looking at I'm looking around here in the United States and I'm like, we're comfortable compared to to, to that. And we're, what are we doing? You know, like so how did how did they do it?
6: No event like this takes place without a process you know it just doesn't appear you know the very fact that there is a debate about spontaneity I think demonstrates that people just haven't had the experience of what it means to build strength working class and peasant organizing is about building power and also building confidence of people to come out and protest in public you know what capitalism does is it erodes the confidence of people. This this confidence issue is fundamental. The idea that you matter, that you as a person matter, that you as a member of a class matter, that your activity can make a difference to change the world. You know, it's confidence that's the antidote to cynicism. It's extremely important. It takes a lot of hard work and boring organizing to build the Political platforms, the economic platforms where people in their little struggles gain the confidence for something so big. So in the middle of all this, this was not a spontaneous action. It's very wrong to see it like that. There were, of course, the communists. There was the All India Kisan Sabha mass organization of the Communist Party of India Marxist. There's the All India Agricultural Workers Union, another mass organization. Of course, the communists are in the thick of things and you can see the red flags everywhere. But it's not just the communists. There are the farmerist organizations. You know, you'll see yellow flags. These are farmerist organizations. They're often um, organized around, say, region. They're organized around charismatic leadership. And so on. You know, this plays a very important role in these protests. So, for instance, in a certain area, there may be a person who's a pretty charismatic speaker, galvanized people in their area and then became a bigger leader, started an organization. So that played a role. Now, no protest movement can sustain itself without mass community support. So when the farmer struggle began and it's been going on for a decade, when the farmer's struggle began, community groups got involved this includes religious groups you know in the punjab for instance uh, the sikh community plays a very important role here the gurdwara community and so on gurdwaras being the religious center of um, of the of, of sikh culture i mean what you see is you know when the farmers came out um, all these organizations whether the left mass organizations whether it's the you know these charismatic groups and so on whether it's the religious organizations, social organizations, community organizations, women organizations, everybody came out because it was very clear quickly that this is not just a fight about these farm bills. It's not just a fight about this farmer or that farmer. This is a fight between capitalism and survival. That's what this is. There's a very high consciousness about this. As the police began to crack down on people, um, the resilience, the resistance to it was very strong. I just want to point out, you know, it takes a lot of work to get here. Um, Things just don't happen. History just doesn't happen. You know, when Marx published um, the Capital, volume one, nobody was reviewing that book. The Engels, you know, and this is the beauty of friendship. Engels wrote seven reviews of Marx's capital. He loved his friend. He went and reviewed it seven times. In one of those reviews, he wrote that history moves in zigs and zags. History moves in zigs and zags. That's very important. You know, you have an advance, you have a defeat, you have another advance. I think the consciousness of that, the ability to break through cynicism and disappointment, Plays a big role also to build organizations with small struggles that escalate to bigger struggles. These are very important. You know, what one sees in the Bernie campaign and in the Corbyn movement and so on, those were all around electoral platforms. Uh, but they also have to build in communities. You have to build the confidence of people. I mean that that's I just this word confidence is very important. What you see now in, at the protest sites, what you see now in the demonstrations is a me- immense confidence of the working class of the peasantry, agricultural workers, Farmers and so on, even the larger farmers have come out to join the demonstration because they see that this is also an existential threat to them because they are going to have to fight against big monopoly firms that dominate the commodity chain, you know, from the market onwards. Big commodity firms, not necessarily growing things. Uh, They don't have their fingers in the soil. And so the farmers, even the relatively big farmers understand that and they are right there with this agitation this is as i said an agitation which is about humanity against capitalism it's nothing more um, more than that i mean nothing less than that it's not a narrow fight this is a fight that i think we should understand as a front line of a fight to save the planet
1: man angles yeah. was the ultimate wingman best bro like yeah, just, a, definitely. just a bro to the bitter end i love him
6: yeah. Seven
0: reviews. It is pretty incredible. How many reviews
6: um, have you written of your friends' books? No, I'm, I need I, I'm to, I, I,
0: feeling very guilty now. So yeah. thank you for that. <laughs> because yeah. you see,
6: my opinion is you'll feel, oh my God, I'm too close to the person or it's nepotism or whatever. But there's a big no. difference between nepotism and love. If you love That's somebody, true. you should, and you agree with what they're saying, you should write about it you know nepotism means it's mediocre content and you're pushing it up (laughs) you know don't be nepotistic but if you love somebody and you believe what they say go out then how many reviews have you written of my books I've, well, well, no, no know, that's, that's enough. No that's no fine. good. I, I mean, mean I, I, I. That's
0: okay. Yeah, that's okay. Thanks. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> on am I love it. Yeah, you <laughs> I can love it now. <laughs> um, I actually I had a question about um, you know, Modi's um intentions here and his personal interests because you know, an estimated fifty percent, like around half of workers in India work in the agriculture industry, um, and so. These protests have been happening. Clearly, uh, there's the um, best interests of the IMF involved as well. What's really motivating Modi here? Like what's in it for him personally?
6: Right. So this is a good question. And I mean, I, I'm not prepared to say exactly what's motivating Mr. Modi, because I don't know what's motivating Mr. Modi. This is a question best asked directly to Mr. Modi. But Well, we can speculate, you know, uh, we can speculate about what's going on here. Um, Mr. Modi is the kind of extreme right leader who on the one side trucks in extraordinary use of toxic ideologies, anti-Muslim ideologies and so on. That's on the one side. On the other side, he promotes a kind of crony capitalism, um, which is very clear. You know, he has uh, his own favored capitalists like the Ambani's, the Adani's and so on. These are Family firms. Um, these firms, as it happens, just before the farm bill gets re- pushed through Parliament by a voice vote, these firms basically took stakes in things like silos um, in the in the in the commodity chain or the food chain. So it's interesting. Um, now, again, I'm not saying anything. I'm just asking you to consider what's going on. Uh, it's interesting that the closest political allies that Mr. Modi has amongst India's capitalists, the Ambani's, the Adani's and so on. Um, Before the farm bill gets pushed, they start taking an increasing stake in the food uh, commodity chain. Uh, The most obvious thing is in the purchase of giant silos, grain silos. Uh, Why did they do this just before this bill gets, and then the bill gets rammed through parliament, basically no discussion. You know, I'm, I believe, You know, democracy is very important that if if you have a, a democracy and you have a parliament and there are five opposition members, there's 300 parliamentarians, even though you have 295 seats in parliament and you can push any bill through, you must allow those five opposition members to speak. They must be allowed to articulate their point of view. That's the basis of democracy. And, you know, as somebody on the left, as a Marxist, I hold very strongly to the idea that you can learn something from your opponents. You must listen to people. Uh, You might be surprised by what they're saying. Um, You don't want to have the arrogance to believe that you have some God view because we don't. The Modi government basically shunned all uh, of the opposition, pushed through this thing. Now you've pushed through this thing. Your cronies are benefiting from it. Some point you should have to answer on this, you know, at some point. So I'm not prepared, you know, and I don't want to just say this is what's happening uh, because I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe they are indeed taking their lessons from the IMF who really believe in labor market, uh, you know, reforms and so on. This these, the phraseology of the IMF. Maybe they really believe that cutting subsidies is going to be good for Indian agriculture. Just by the way, what's good for the Western goose and what's supposedly therefore not good for the Eastern gander. um, The European Union spends about 65 billion U.S. dollars, 65 billion U.S. dollars every year to subsidize its farmers. The United States has spent trillions of dollars subsidizing its farmers over the past decades. What's okay for the goose here, you can't allow the Indian farmer to get any subsidy it um, seems to me even the theoretical argument about free markets and so on is suspicious to me. You know, somebody is benefiting. Again, I mean, I'm not going to just say, "Oh, it's Adani, it's sambani But I think, don't you feel if they're buying silos, uh, if they're taking charge of the the food chain, and then this kind of reform happens, which will benefit the food chain, well, put it together. Yeah. You know, put it together. Sounds suspicious. Ask Modi the question, right?
1: Yeah, I don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure that one out.
0: Such a good point about, you know, other countries subsidizing uh, the agriculture industry. I mean, think about what um, Trump did when his uh, trade war ended up hurting uh, soybean farmers and other you know agricultural um, workers. He just decided, all right, well, we're just going to take federal money and we're going to go ahead and hand you guys uh, some cash so you can get by. And of course, I mean, I'm very s- suspicious about where that money actually went. I'm, I'm very I don't think it went to small farmers. <laughs> I think it went to big, mm. um, you know, agriculture companies, but um sorry, Nando. Did you have a question? Mm.
1: No, I, I, I just, I was just curious. Cause I mean, I, I, India is a place that I, I'm not super familiar with. I have never been to India. Um, and, and it's a country that, that, you know, seems, seems like a, you know, it's like a whole huge, like it's huge. And I, I just wanted to ask about the, the, the nature of the Indian ruling class. And, um, and what it's like like what 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 is the indian ruling class uh, kind of like how does it behave i mean i'm sure it's much like the ruling class everywhere but th- what is its particular kind of flavor
6: well i'm smiling when you're saying that because you know look let's let's look at the ruling classes as you say it's probably not unlike ruling classes elsewhere look at the ruling class in the united states in the united kingdom in other places There is a kind of wretchedness in the ruling class. And and I use that word advisedly. There's a wretchedness, you know, there's a way in which it's willing to sell any idea, uh, you know, under the river, under the bridge, uh, if it benefits. Uh, Look at when Trump was doing his trade war, so-called trade war against China, you know. Every single Silicon Valley firm understood that they would benefit if there's extra economic pressure on Huawei and ZTE because those are direct competitors with Silicon Valley. Um, The head of Apple went to see Trump. Uh, He didn't complain about the trade war. He said that, you know, your trade war is giving Samsung in South Korea an advantage over over Apple. That's what he complained about. They were all for the trade war. I mean, it's a wretched Ruling class, they they would like to say, well, we don't like Trump because he's, you know, maybe he's sexist, this, that and the other. But the other side of it, we like it and we, we really want it, which is why Biden is essentially going to replicate the so-called trade war against China. There is a wretchedness in the ruling class. Its principles are organized around profit, you know, essentially. And then maybe a few other things sprinkled like, you know, um, like the decoration on a cake. But what's baked into the cake Uh, Their main principle is the profit motive. Uh, And and I'm not I don't want to sound too rigid in this, but give me evidence to show that there are other things in a principled way that they hold the line on. Even freedom of speech. It's not a principled issue for them. Uh, It's in fact, I don't see the principles operating very much at all, um, you know, uh, on that. I mean, they were happy that Trump was booted off Twitter now. I'm happy for other reasons that he's booted off, or booted from Twitter because, boy, I mean, he's an obnoxious character. But, you know, there are principles that should be at least raised by people. At any rate, uh, the Indian ruling class, very much the same. Um, it is basically shaped uh, by its um, history of being advantaged. Uh, you know, sections of it were advantaged in colonial times. But large parts of it derived their advantage from the Indian state and its protections. In 1944, mm. the Indian ruling class sat down and wrote a plan three years before independence called the Bombay Plan. It was drafted by the Tatas, the Birlas, other big capitalists. They wrote in the Bombay plan, we want protections, we want a subsidy tariff regime to protect the creation of the national economy so that we can blossom and not be squashed by imperialism, the continuation of imperialism after independence. That's the nature of the Bombay plan. This Bombay plan continued in its essentials till the 1980s, uh, when in this period The Indian state used the wealth of the Indian people to incubate the Indian ruling class. When the Indian ruling class felt, well, you know, we are strong enough now to start competing internationally. They collaborated with the IMF in 1991. Open the doors. Open the doors. Who's going to pay the price of this? The farmers. Do you know from 1991, when India liberalized, meaning opened the gates to foreign funding and to foreign control, 1991... Till just yesterday, we have seen about 300,000 farmers in India commit suicide. Uh, The suicide rate Mm. among farmers is extremely high. This was a story broken by my friend and colleague P. Sainath. This farmer's suicide issue is, is very significant because it means that there was a lack of organization and confidence among the farmers. In the recent period... During the agitations, the protests in Maharashtra, the long march in Maharashtra from Nasik to Bombay, and then in the farmer's agitation in, in Rajasthan, in the state just um, southwest of Delhi. In, during this farmer's agitation, suicide rate has collapsed. And why is that? Because people's confidence is up, because they feel there is an exit from this crisis. The exit isn't suicide. The exit is mass struggle. I think that's very significant. The the ruling class has had to now absorb the fact um, that the people are fighting and they're saying, look, you benefit whether whether the economy goes up and down, you benefit. When the economy goes up and down, we pay the cost. And I think that's Mm. where you understand the wretchedness of the ruling class.
0: Can we expect to see more of these types of uh, uprisings in the region, um, in the global south?
6: We're already seeing it. I mean, that's what's really interesting. Um, You know, we're already seeing it. We're seeing healthcare workers... Uh, on the streets in Kenya. We're seeing young people on the streets in Tunisia. You know, we're, we're seeing mass agitations in Brazil against the Bolsonaro government. We're seeing lots of global agitation, you know, that, that I mean, I could go on and on, list country after country, even Burma, you know, from where my my grandmother comes. Uh, Burma uh, has been under a coup government since 1962. This coup that happened recently was just removing the fig leaf that was Put out there just a few years ago with Aung San Suu Kyi. It's not a democracy that suddenly the military took power. Military has been there since 1962 in the capital that the Burmese military created in the heartland, thinking this will be safe. In that capital city, there have been rolling protests. Administrators have been coming out on the street. They call it the drum revolution. Um uh, in Thailand, which has had a mi- military government also effectively from the 1960s, hiding behind the monarchy, there have been rolling protests. We're going to see this, guys. We're going to see this deepen. Mm. And you know why we're going to see this? Because this pandemic has basically revealed how rotten this system is. It's not that the pandemic has made the system rotten. The system was rotten. The bloody system has been rotten for hundreds of years. <laughs> this pandemic has just shown its rottenness. Meanwhile, look at China. I mean, what are we talking about? This is a system that has been able to at least mostly break the chain of the infection. And during the pandemic, they've been able to declare an end to absolute poverty. 850 million people raised out of poverty. You know, if you are an agricultural worker in India, you would wish you were born in China.
1: Mm. You know, I, I... I, I hearing you talk about all these these kind of uprisings i mean i want to ask about because it's something that we touch all, a lot on this show and we always ask our guests you know the importance of um international solidarity for these kind of movements i mean we we covered it on this show almost as importantly rihanna tweeted about the indian farmer protest not not as important as this show but yeah it's still pretty cool um you know what? What is that? What is that? What role does that kind of thing play? Um, you know, does a does a, a protesting farmer that's occupying the outskirts of Delhi? Um, how how does how does us kind of thinking about it, caring about it, expressing solidarity help that farmer?
6: Look, let me ask you a question, Nandu. I mean, Anna, either of you. You know, if you are feeling down, okay or you're in the middle of something that's emotionally intense, not just down, if you're happy or you're in the middle of something and you've done something, you know, you, you did some, you did a great thing. And it's nice to be told by somebody, listen, I'm texting you. That was great. What you did. You know, I'm really impressed by that. Or you know, I saw you today. You look sad. I mean, when somebody reaches out to you, it always feels good. When you're in the middle of a collective struggle, and an important person. You know, Rihanna is an important person. She has a big following. The Greta thurnberg yeah. important person. Uh, Cl- uh, Claudia Webb, a member of the UK Parliament, important person. When they tweet and say, we stand with the farmers, it means something to people, you know, especially when the right wing went nuts. And when these insane groups like the Hindu Sena went on the street and started burning pictures of Greta Thunberg and burning pictures of Rihanna. I mean, (laughs) when they did that, these people become heroes for the farmers. Look, it's it's always important to offer your solidarity to people. There there are two forms of solidarity. There's material solidarity where you go and help people. You know, if there is people standing on, on the line striking somewhere, it's a good idea to bring them a pot of soup and say, I've come to be with you. Here's a pot of soup. Can I contribute to the strike fund? Can I come and spend a few hours? I have a guitar. I'm going to come and sing to you. That's a form of material solidarity. It's so important for you know movements to have that from people where the community comes and becomes part of you standing up straight. That's really important. That's what I meant about the Gurdwaras coming in, the Sikh religious institution. You come in and you provide a kind of material support. And then there is the emotional support. It's no less important when somebody makes a phone call and says, you know, I'm with you. It, it means a great deal to people. And so, I mean, I'm going to encourage people Take to Twitter, tag at Narendra Modi, tell the (laughs) Prime Minister of India that you stand with the farmers of India. Tag at Narendra Modi, tag Kisan Sabha, you know, the Farmers Association, at Kisan Sabha. Uh, Tell the agricultural workers you stand with them. Uh, It's a great feeling for people to feel that there is the world behind them. It's a terrific feeling. Is there
1: something... Go ahead. Just remember, no, quickly, no. hearing you describe the insane Indian right wing makes me realize that much like the ruling class is kind of similar everywhere, the insane right wing is similar everywhere.
6: <laughs> I just reading the comments. Yeah, Read some it. of the
0: comments to Rihanna's tweet. I mean, it's just the, the pro Modi propaganda, especially on Twitter, is pretty intense. I mean, I've seen quite a bit of it after um, critiquing him in, in some of the videos that we've done at TYT. Um, but, you know, to your point about offering, um, you know, validation through social media and also there's material support. Are there any international institutions, international groups that maybe our viewers can look into to offer um, some material support to these farmers?
6: I mean, not really. I mean, not immediately. The farmers are pretty doing pretty well. You know, they have massive community support. They, they don't require that, actually. Uh, th- that's not essential. Um, I think what's really essential is for people who are in press councils around the world. Any journalist should take mm. to social media, write statements in support of newsclick.in. Newsclick, the attack on Newsclick is really part of the attack on the farmers movement. So if you stand with the journalists at Newsclick, I think that's a very important stand. I would, I know that the National Union of Journalists in the UK and other places have put out statements of support. I really hope that journalists will come out and others and and, and say we stand with NewsClick, follow NewsClick, um, really get, you know, that part of it is very important. But also, I think it would be very, very wonderful if farmers associations... You know I, I don't know I don't know this landscape but I assume I'm just guessing now you know the Vermont Milk Farmers Association and so on um I'm just guessing uh, if if they came out and they said we support the farmers we stand with the farmers in Brazil the landless workers movement on the 26th of January did a movement where in their encampments of farmers peasants came in public with candles and say we light a candle for the Indian farmers now what that does is that sends a message to the farmers' agitation in India, but it also sends a message uh, to the farmers, uh, peasants in Brazil, because they now feel that we have allies in in India and that that action that collective action in Brazil was both for the indian struggle but also for the struggle in brazil so i highly recommend people take advantage as it were of this issue to build their own confidence and strength in their own communities uh, go out there and try to have some kind of public display from agriculturalists of various kinds, in support of the farmers of India. I mean, in 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 the West, there still are a number of agricultural worker unions. Uh, there are cooperatives. There are all kinds of bodies. You know, however big or small they are, I think that activity itself shows that one has developed a global consciousness. So I, I highly recommend, you know, for journalists and others to support NewsClick, and for Uh, any agriculturalist organization to come out there and write statements of support to the farmers. I, I think this would be very helpful.
0: Vijay, thank you so much for taking time to um, explain what's going on. But more importantly, you know, offering words of encouragement and um, positivity, you know, it's it's kind of hard to come by these days with um, all the crises that people are experiencing for coronavirus to the crisis that capitalism brings forth. Um, so everyone, please support um, you know, Vijay Prashad's work, um, newsclick.in. Uh, I, I got that right, correct? Yes. 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 Review uh, his books. Should, uh, Be like yes. Angles.
1: Yes. Yes. Read them, Seven review reviews. them.
0: You gotta do it. Yeah. You gotta do it. Yeah. BJ Prashant, thank you again.
6: Thanks a lot. Take care of yourselves. Bye.
0: You too. God, I love this lovely show. Lovely
1: man. Yeah, lovely, <laughs> lovely. lovely. You know, like this is the kind of guests we get on the Jacobin show. Just people who know more than you, but they aren't dicks about it. And they just yeah. want yeah. to, yeah, like just a lovely, lovely man who just wants to make a better world. It's just, you know, that, that always makes me feel good.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Speaking wants- of uh, knowing more than you and being a dick about it. Hey, Kale. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going to say that
2: VJ makes me want to be more disciplined that, uh, when he, when he started off saying, you know, that it's, uh, it's about kind of cultivating discipline, cultivating confidence, uh, those are those are the qualities that all of our
1: comrades need and, yes. and should aspire. Discipline for, so. is very underrated, you know, and uh, I think that uh, uh, you know it gets a bad rap because of like you know Stalinism or whatever. But there is <laughs> there is there is something to be said about like you know at a certain point you just have to kind of be disciplined. I don't know, like you know, don't go off on your own little weird uh your own little weird journey just you know like the, we need to sort of it's like a roman the Roman legions that's why like that's why they were able to defeat uh every single you know barbarian armies because they just had more organizational discipline and were able to exploit their strength in a lot uh, more effective way and so, sick fits yeah and they had sick yeah fits. that's true yeah <laughs> uh,
2: so I'm here because we're gonna take some questions from the audience so if you want to send us a question leave us a super chat on YouTube uh, and if you're not doing that uh, please hit like please hit subscribe it takes a second and there's
1: a bunch of good stuff that we keep putting
2: out yeah be like eight.
1: you don't have to be like angles and do write seven reviews but you can at least like and subscribe to the show who I mean that's just that's yeah you know that's, like
2: that's the bare minimum way to support us. Or do like one seventh of Angles' effort and write
1: us one review. Right, that one review. Yeah, do, oh, like maybe like on a medium post. Like where would we? <laughs> I, I love the idea of this like this show being reviewed on on like Rotten Tomatoes. You know, like eighty eight percent. What do
0: you think we'd get? You think we'd get eighty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes? I, about
1: to be, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, unless we got unless we like pissed off some like annoying bot army out there, which I think we have in the past and. Uh, Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and then they would just tank our score. No, but I'm gonna, I'm going to blame it on the bots. No, we we'd yeah. be we'd be totally fresh. We'd be 100% fresh.
2: Cuz that's the, part of Rotten tomatoes it's not literal everyone gives 100. It's like everyone gives over right. 70% and that leads to right. 100% fresh right, a little right, right. strange. We'd be fresh. Uh, just Yeah. We keep it fresh, fresh and clean. Um <laughs> so fresh, so clean. Uh we have a super <laughs> chat uh from LJ <laughs> who asks us considering the capitalist state bourgeois policy is there a through line (laughs) we're starting off (laughs) starting off uh (laughs) very marxist um considering the state considering the capitalist state bourgeois policy is there a through line to connect capitalist induced schizophrenia experienced by rural labor in india and urban suffering and homelessness uh such as uh what's happening with covid
1: um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, you know, you don't need to be a, you don't need to be like a super hyper theorist to understand that it sucks to be homeless and it sucks to be an immiserated farmer, uh, and that, that could have mental, uh, health effects <laughs> on you. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, there is definitely a through line. Yeah. And,
2: and I think it's, I think it's worth, uh, saying, uh, and it's kind of already baked into the question, but that like the crises that we're facing these multiple crises between the health crisis, between homelessness, between inequality, between more and more of the fruits of our labor going to the capitalist class as Nando illustrated a moment earlier in in his segment, all of these crises that face working people are not natural. There's nothing about them that has to happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, even, even, coronavirus like the fact that there is a disease does not mean that we have to experience it in such a horrible terrible way um mm-hmm. because for instance like we actually have evidence that scientists were warning us about uh, strains yeah. of SARS and of COVID years ago 10 years ago and they were saying uh we should probably develop vaccines for these just in case because you know these SARS and COVID comes back uh so we should have something ready for that And uh, they did not produce vaccines because there was no profit in producing one. There was no point in doing it at that time in the minds of a capitalist because to them, it's just a waste of money on research and development. And here we are now for something that may not ever be used. Right.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: Right. So like that's a that's a political failure. Um, That is that is a failure of our economic system that produces outcomes uh, and produces only those commodities and those things in the world that are going to immediately produce a profit for capitalists in the short term. That there is almost no long-term horizon, there is no consideration for the human costs, especially, again, especially, the longer you look into the future, the more they don't give a shit. Like, the point is, mm-hmm. as and I think VJ's right, <laughs> and, like, I'm, I'm pretty vulgar, just like him, that it's, like, the vast majority of what the ruling class, what capitalists care about, is making a profit. That's the cake, and there's all the icing, there's all like the, you know, there's all these different bells and whistles to try to, you know, there's all the stuff that happens in the media. And so much of it, you know, a lot of it is just kind of show there's not much there, there. The bulk of what corporations, businesses, capitalists are interested in is maximizing profit and minimizing costs. And as Nando said earlier, labor's a cost. So...
0: Yeah. And and, like, it's devoid of morality. You know what I mean? Like, you'll see marketing campaigns to try to, you know, clean things up and make it appear as though decisions are being made with like a moral um, objective. But morality doesn't play a role at all. At the end of the day, it's just about making decisions based on future profits.
2: Well, they will actively change their morality based on the fact that they have to make profits like that's
0: that's right. that's right. I mean, we see that with black lives matter. Um we see that with like the mm-hmm. the super hollow pandering that happens with these corporations and companies, right? Like when Nike chose to use Colin Kaepernick in one of their marketing campaigns, they didn't do it because they genuinely believe in what he was well, um you know trying to you know, raise awareness about if it were profitable to be on the side of cops, you know, using excessive force and brutality, then they would use a cop in their marketing campaign. Like it's, they didn't make that decision based on what's moral, you know?
1: The the Kaepernick thing is the perfect example of what Kale is talking about that I'm sure that a lot of the NFL um, owners have like racist beliefs in their heart, but at the end of the day, Kaepernick was blackballed when he was because they thought he represented a threat to their bottom line, their profits, their ratings, all that stuff. And then, because um, as as evidenced by the fact that in the Super Bowl that just happened, which I watched, they fucking got that uh, the Amanda Gorman to come and do the the Super Bowl show, and you know, and like, so they don't they don't care about any of this stuff. You yeah. know because they they see that the winds have changed or whatever and um, and sometimes they're sometimes they're they make incorrect decisions like I don't know that it's true that Kaepernick actually threatened um, their their profits, but they did feel that way that but that was their that was their biggest motivation for it like these people are like they 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 would never foreground their whatever to the extent that they are racism beyond their in, in before their ability to make profit like they, mm-hmm. they just would never do that like they'll yeah get the get the national youth poet laureate up there uh, i don't give a shit you know what i mean like it's it, really like <laughs> they're, they're, they're gonna love this <laughs> the people are gonna, they're gonna love this and, and they're gonna watch my show um and they're gonna give us more money as a result so yeah i it's that's always very important to understand right and just sorry anna
0: no no i was gonna move on but if you have something else to add go ahead
1: Well, just that,
2: because one of the things that Nando just said that um, I think, and still just kind of going back to the same question that we were just answering a moment ago. um, The thing is, is that like any individual capitalist, any individual business corporation, um, they are single-mindedly focused on maximizing profit, but that doesn't mean that they then like, they don't have some supernatural ability to understand uh, you know, how their actions are going to affect everyone else. They don't know, you know, if down the line what they're doing today is actually going to bankrupt them a year from now. It, and so that's actually in large part where a lot of the actions of the state comes in and like government, that that they end up becoming responsible for making sure that the, the immediate short-term interests and decision-making of individual firms don't either destroy the entire system or Mm -hmm. or those you know or sectors of the economy i mean this is um it's interesting uh you know we didn't really get into this at all but like there's uh i'm there's a really great book that people should check out if they're interested in 20th century indian history um by (laughs) vivek chiver who's as i'm Mm -hmm. sure many of you know uh, he's my dude Um, but it's his first book and it's, it's incredible because it's trying to look at why were, for instance, uh, growth rates and, uh, output in India so much lower as a percentage compared to other, um, uh, uh, for instance, like Taiwan, South Korea, the, like, um, the East Asian miracle countries, uh, what happened in India so that, you know, it, it basically slows down and, and goes into crisis. Uh, by the end of the century. And then as, as Vijay was saying, by 91, it switches into full neoliberalism. Um, but in large part, it's that, uh, you know, the capitalist class, um, are pursuing their very narrow interests and the state was not able to, after the war, after, um, after liber- basically after they, uh, decolonized from, uh, from uh England from the sorry nine great britain but the greater england um yeah after deco- yeah well <laughs> i don't know about that but the uh but after decolonization uh basically the um the ruling class uh uh Gandhi and others um basically demobilized the anti-colonial movement uh to their own peril because they basically they got rid of this this massive movement and they like you know repressed it and then when they tried to force their capitalist class to uh invest the ways that they wanted to that the state wanted them to the capitalist said screw you you have no power over us and there was Sounds no movement like <laughs> well this Cause... is this is just the this is the never-ending story of capitalists have very narrow interests the state wants certain kind of you know larger plans but the state cannot force capitalists to do what it wants uh, under normal circumstances if capitalists are making profit and they're doing all right because they own all this stuff. So like the state can say, do this, invest in this way, we're going to tax you with this amount, and corporations and capitalists go, yeah, sure, no, we're not doing that. Uh, what are you going to do? We own all the shit. Like if you, if you try to hurt us, we'll just disinvest. We'll just withhold investment. We'll just park it in a bank mm-hmm. because we'll just wait until you get your act together and then we'll start investing again. Uh, and so ultimately the, like the most important thing, you know, if, especially if you're thinking of like building a welfare state, building like, uh you know, building out the government so that it takes care of public interests, taking care of working class interests, you need a working class labor movement to discipline the capitalist class and to discipline the state. and And what happened in India is they dis- they dismantled their uh, their working class movement because in the immediate moment it made sense to the ruling class. Uh, you know we don't want them to go too far. You know we don't want them to uh, you know take too much. And uh, and then it shot themselves in the foot because then they couldn't do anything and they had shitty growth rates. So. Lesson to, to states and capitalists out there, uh, you know, the working class is good for you because Kale
1: coming in with the contrarian hot take that Gandhi was actually problematic. Uh, um,
0: um, all right, I'm just going to read uh, two super chats, and my meds are wearing off and I'm getting dizzy. By the <laughs> way, I got to go. Um, but uh, first, I'm going to read this from Champagne Communista. Yes, I'm going to read it. Uh, <laughs> Your little cochina, will Nando consider starting discipline courses? I think I need to be disciplined.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, read uh, Mark's Valley, uh Capital, Volume <laughs> One, and uh, get back to me. <laughs> that's All right. All that's right. your disciplining. Yeah, you're like kill him. Um, that's what I do every uh, kills like that's what I do for fun every Saturday night. <laughs>
2: yeah, that was then, I was considering discipline on top of that.
1: That's right, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and then LJ, um, was it Colorado State University that kept Anna from speaking? So a few years ago, the student body at a, Cal- a Cal- Colorado University voted to have me as like the keynote speaker at some um, diversity week event, and then the school board uh, nixed it. They vetoed it, even though I won an overwhelming majority of the vote. I'm not a hundred percent sure which university it is um, because they had hired like a third party to reach out to me and like get everything scheduled um, and they they weren't clear about the specific university um, so I don't want I don't want to speculate, but yeah, that happened um for all the you know Fine free speech stuff we hear from like the Ben Shapiros of the world and how they always make themselves out to be like the victims of like these left-wing college campuses I mean, school boards are pretty conservative you know, and they didn't like what I had to say about Trump during the 2016 um, election and that's what they cited for why they vetoed uh, me as a speaker, Mm. but I mean, it was years ago, I'm over it, it's not a big deal
2: Mm. Don't want to touch controversy because they gotta make the money They gotta... Um, okay, so wait, so there's two more questions, I'm going to lump them together, and we'll do them quick, because, uh, we're all, I think, fading a little bit, um, (laughs) but, uh, okay, so the last two questions, um, Erica asks us, what's the class consciousness like in India? Does it fall within the caste system? Um, we'll try our best to answer that one, that might, that might be more for Vijay, but, um, and then there's another question, this I think we'll have a better chance at, um, is... With disaster capitalism having a widespread impact in India and the u s now instead of smaller countries or uh, communities not uh that are not the u s um, uh, or sorry not not u s u in the mainstream news, could it lead to more awareness and success in combating its worst effects um, i mean
0: so the first thing that comes to mind with that question, and I don't know how you guys feel about it. Like, I I love Bernie, but I felt that the disaster that we're experiencing right now was a perfect opportunity for him to make his case about why we need to really change the system. Um, and then he dropped out of the uh, Democratic primary because, yeah, I mean... And I also think that... Um, Vijay made a really great point about how this pandemic like lifted the veil of any positive argument in favor of capitalism because the system like people were already suffering significantly under the system um but coronavirus and other disasters just further compounded it and you see decisions being made in like the United States for instance decisions are made um based on money right like think about the vaccine development with Pfizer, Moderna, whatever. I mean, the whole point of that Operation Warp Speed uh, process was let's pump money into these private pharmaceutical companies to motivate them to, you know, develop these vaccines. That is not, it's it's just not the right system, you know? It's, so yeah, um, that's my take on it.
1: I mean... Uh, with regards to the well with regards to the class consciousness and caste system in india I, I don't feel qualified to to give it Same. <laughs> yeah. the the, with the, to the to the question about disaster capitalism and the mainstream media I mean my faith in the mainstream media is is, is close to zero uh, you know especially on the whole like I, I read the New York Times and I read it if I read these things because they 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 are kind of our way to get informed of the world you just have to read them with the different you know, critically the understanding yeah with the understanding of where it's all coming from and then you can then you can like pick apart what it what really you need to use and, and ignore all the sort of bullshit that they that they spew but uh so yes th- z- zero faith in the mainstream media and again it's not it's not out of a, um just because they're all idiots or something it's more it's a it's a structural thing i mean it's it's this is what i always talk about because i i think about the media a lot um we can complain about it a lot but it's there is a structural issue with it and there is a structural issue with for-profit news um and that that's just never going to change unless we figure out a different model for information and news gathering and journalism and things like that um so yes no faith in the mainstream media to, to do anything meaningful uh, to to you know raise important issues about disaster capitalism in countries that <laughs> are on the periphery to american interests it basically yeah. is the bottom line um
0: sorry i missed the the media angle to it but just to buttress your point um nando i mean in the question i missed it so i apologize um but just to buttress your point um you know when we talk about reading uh the new york times or the washington post critically a good example is anytime they cite a think tank and refer to it as bipartisan just, just understand it. that it's ignore it ignore it literally In fact, ignore um it. yeah yeah the washington post uh just i think it was this week i was looking for the article that's why i was looking at my phone they had cited analysis done by a think tank which they referred to as a non-partisan think tank and i was like i'm gonna click on um i'm gonna research this think tank just to find out like who's on the board you mm. got like leon panetta you got a guy oh, yeah. you know i mean just like some of the worst people who are By the way, some of them like extreme right-wingers, you're like, what? Nonpartisan? So yeah, I mean, I think you can get basic information about what's going on, but anytime they rely on a specific person or one person who's like, an unnamed source. And they're saying that there's an imminent threat from this country. And we need to like, get ready for war, be critical of that. And be, no, or any, you know.
1: anytime they, anytime they write about and someone on the left or anytime they write about a, a quote unquote official enemy of the United States, just right. pretty much. I mean, you can't trust any of that. You just can't, I'm sorry. No. You just can't, you know, like um, it creates a big information vacuum to be honest. Um, but you just really can't like when they, when they're reporting on, like, there's a funny, like, uh, ongoing series that uh, I think Adam Johnson does. He's a big, like, media watcher. But, like, he, he always reports. He always does, like, a series where they whenever, like, there's a mainstream news article about North Korea, like, inevitably, three or four weeks later, it'll get walked back. Mm-hmm. You know, because, like, they'll just report, like, the mo- they'll hear some insane thing about North Korea, report it as if it were fact, and then have to walk it back. Like, it's, like, every single time. Like, there is just. So, yeah, I just don't. I don't know when it's, a, when it's about an official enemy, the United States, just, I pretty much ignore it. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I mean, the other, so the thing with like, uh, you know, nonpartisan think tanks or uh, sources, I mean,
0: There's no such sure. thing, by the way.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: There's no such Sorry. thing as a nonpartisan think tank. Think tanks are nothing more than um, vehicles in which uh, lobbying can be done uh, under the right. radar. That's what that's what they are. There, there's no such thing as a nonpartisan think tank,
2: right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, and basically what I was just going to say is that e- even if it's not like explicitly like we're the Democratic Party think tank or the Republican Party, whatever, like they still have class interests. Like there's still like that's the maybe the, even the more important characteristic. That's like regardless mm-hmm. of its partisan affiliation, like most of these, you know, and that's not to say that they all, you know, like it's not that like everything that comes out of brookings is uh is awful in fact there's plenty of good information that comes out of it but of course like the like the policy upshot is not typically ever like in the best interest of working-class people so um the last thing i wanted to say just on the point of disaster capitalism and i guess also like indian class interests um where wait where is she nando (laughs) hold on wait what is my mom in the comments (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, we got we got nando's mom in the comments today folks Man, um, nando's mom in the it. comments <laughs> sorry um on disaster capitalism and class interests i mean i think one of the things that we've seen is that the fact that there is a crisis the fact that there are disasters that are destroying people's lives it does not necessarily translate immediately into people taking action against these things in fact i think very often people's typical response in a moment of crisis is to just kind of hold their head down and, uh, you know, push through to you know take care of the, the ones that they have close to them, family, friends. Uh, and in many ways it ends up becoming anti-solidaristic um, because you are, it's, it's a traumatic, awful moment. And that's why you need to have left institutions and left political pro- uh, projects. You need to have unions. You need to have things that actually are there no matter what, that can take care of people. Uh, So Mm. that when shit hits the fan, you, you can lean back onto solidarity rather than, uh, you know, go it alone, trying to, you know, take care of the immediate people or, and again, the worst expressions of that is when it turns into things like nationalism, or it becomes racist or xenophobic of, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, of course, you know, uh, the ruling class, you know, business, the government will take advantage of crises. Uh, you know, they will, um, you know, they're going to use disaster capitalism, the phrase that Naomi Klein, um, pretty sure she was the one who first started using it several years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, Of course, they're going to take advantage of those situations, uh, you know. And so I think there's no, like, there's no, I can't give you an easy, obvious, just like, well, if only the start of the pandemic, we all did this, you know, it's, the problem is that we didn't have what we needed going into it. And so mm-hmm. you know, we need to have a longer term view of what can we build that's going to be there, regardless of these kind of situations that can, you know, that can tolerate, you know, the worst onsalt- onsalt- onslaught, Ons- onslaught, <laughs>
5: onslaught, onslaught,
2: of of our enemies uh, that can, you know, uh, weather uh, climate change and, and global pandemics. Um, and I think that that is true here as it is true in India and elsewhere. And that, you know, if you're a working class person in India, you know, you don't necessarily develop class consciousness because you're a worker. Like that's, like Vijay was saying, it's not instantaneous, like it's a process and it's something that we actively build and cultivate. Um, so we're getting more Nando mom content in the comments it's so uh,
0: sweet i love it I'll, I'll be fair
2: that my mom was also in the comments uh anna it nice. seems like we're missing one so oh, you yeah, don't want you don't mom. want my mom
0: in the comments not that my mom disagrees with what we're talking about it's just it would it would embarrass me <laughs> so <laughs> but your mom's comments are super sweet nando i love it
1: she's the best yeah <laughs> uh well
2: i think i think that's a good place uh, yeah to end so hit like hit subscribe share it with your friends share it with someone that uh you think would enjoy this share it with someone who you think might you, you didn't already think might enjoy this and make them enjoy it i don't know shove it in their face do eyes wide shut yeah. and yeah. not, yeah. or wide shut. No, <laughs> do call, both wrong <laughs> kubrick dude yeah like he yeah.
1: went to film school <sighs>
0: <laughs> also, um, you know, every every week, I don't know about you, Nando, but every week I'm like, what should I talk about? What should we do a deep dive on today um, or for the upcoming episode of weekends? Um, so if there's a topic that you guys would like us to kind of look into, um, just let us know in the comments section. Um, I'm always open to suggestions mm-hmm, or tweet us. Exactly. Um, but thank you for watching the show. Thanks for supporting us. And uh, Nando, any final words before we wrap?
1: No, it was good to be back. Feels, feels great. Honestly, my Saturday has been brightened up by doing the show with you guys.
0: I love it. We love having you and uh, it's good to have you back. All right, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Happy Valentine's Day tomorrow. And uh, we'll see you next week with another episode of Weekends.
1: Bye-bye. <laughs>